What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. My name is Jared, and today we're talking about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and I've brought with me one person who's not really into comic books, Amanda. Hey. And somebody who's really into comic books, Matthew. Howdy, y'all. All right, so this movie's directed by Bob Paraschetti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman, starring Shamik Moore. Let's go ahead and get people's first impressions. It, if it was the first time you watched this movie, what did you think? If it was your second time or perhaps third time watching it, tell me what this most recent viewing was like. Let's start with Amanda. Was this your first time seeing it? This was my first time seeing it. As you said, I'm not really like a big comic book person. I enjoyed this so much like i can't even tell you i thought it was like revelatory it made me want to start reading comic books i just thought the animation was so brilliant and engaging and i i genuinely have never enjoyed a comic book movie as much as this yeah that's one of the reasons i wanted to cover this movie is because people have really really strong reactions to it yeah uh matthew what about you yeah, this was like my fourth or fifth time watching this movie. Uh, love it. Um, Dan Slott's Spider-Verse, on which this film is like very, very loosely inspired. It's my absolute favorite Spider-Man story uh, from the comics. Mm-hmm. And so this film is right up there with Far From Home as my favorite Spider-Man movie. And the pop art direction of it all is phenomenal. It's exactly what Roy Lichtenstein would have done like had he been a film director. I, I just love it. <laughs> love it, that. It's an homage like a genuine homage to the source material what comics look like because dc they do a lot of animated movies and they churn out a ton of cheap poorly animated junk i'll say i don't know what the censorship is on this if we can curse or not but it deserves a curse the kind of animation quality of those dc movies which makes no sense because they're adapting stories from comics and the comics themselves are so beautiful it gives you no reason to watch the movie instead of just reading the comic but spider-verse here like, one, it's a more or less original story. But even if it weren't, the animation adds so much value to it. And you'll notice that a lot of the characters they included uh, from the different universes and whatnot, they all have their own unique art style that doesn't clash. Mm-hmm. It's somehow complementary. Like, Penny Parker adds a little bit of an anime flair. And Spider-Man Noir makes a little bit of a noir flair to it. And somehow, Spider-Ham. He's even more of a cartoon in an already animated world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love the uh, way that they don't necessarily go with great power and great responsibility. They give Miles his own twist on that, the whole dichotomy between no expectations and great expectations, you know, which he has that uh, mm-hmm. for himself, no expectations. You know, he wants to drop out of Vision Academy at the beginning, just commit vandalism with his uncle. But then, you know, he obviously ends up, you know, having great expectations for himself. And obviously that's an allusion to Dickens. Uh, you know, his novel is like this building Roman. Like, it's a genre all about psychological and moral development of the protagonist, which is exactly what, you know, the Spider-Verse is for Miles. So it's just so smart there. I love the Stan Lee cameo, probably the best one he's ever done. Uh, mm. You know, where he says, like, something to the effect of uh, everyone goes into the costume eventually. And really, that's the sentiment of the film. Like, that's the message that anyone can be Spider-Man underneath the mask, which is why you see such a diverse array of characters from all these alternate dimensions that have taken up the mantle of Spider-Person. And last thought, uh, it's so fitting that the uh, Cambrian explosion of diversity in a film where Miles is the main protagonist, like because his introduction way back in 2011, uh, that's what ended the modern age of comics and it inaugurated the current postmodern age of comics. 
You know, just like the Silver Age, you know, started with a reimagining of Golden Age characters like Flash and Green Lantern, here in the postmodern age, it reimagines every possible iteration you can have of a character. So you don't just have, like, one new Spider-Man. You have a Spider-Verse full of an infinite number of Spider-Folk. You know, likewise, you have, like, the entire dark multiverse of evil Batman nowadays. Uh, it's an approach which, like, is all about the millennial generation and our narcissism, like the idea that what every reader really wants to read are stories about himself or herself in the spandex and skivvies. And, yes, there's already a cowboy Spider-Man and a cowboy Batman, so I, I'm benefiting from that, so... So much more to discuss, but I'll, I'll save it for later. Yeah, man. I'm glad to hear that you're really passionate about this. I'm always very curious to hear your takes on because you're pretty much the only one on the team who really is deep into the comic lore and knowing what it was building off of and stuff like that. So glad to hear that you liked it. I similarly like this movie a lot. I actually saw it for the second time yesterday, and I liked it a lot more the second time than the first time. The first time I was having a lot of difficulty parsing out what exactly Miles's arc was, because there are a lot of things going on here. If you do try to look at it through great power, great responsibility, which I still think that you can, but it's not as clear as in the more recent Tom Holland Spider-Man films. But I, the whole thing with choice, I think, was confusing for me at first. But upon the second viewing, I think it really works. And I think that the emotional parts between Miles and his dad and Uncle Aaron work so well in this. Mm -hmm as well, if not better, than some of the most emotional parts with Tom Holland and and Iron Man. And for that to happen in an animated movie is just so awesome. And I hope they make more of these. I imagine they will. This movie was such a huge critical hit for them. So I'm looking forward to more Spider-Verse movies. But um, before we go into a recap, a couple things I want to bring up. One, uh, if you guys have been listening to the podcast, you know I've been talking about this a lot. We now have a publication on Medium. We have partnered with them. We've been working really hard to uh, be publishing articles regularly. So check us out at medium.com slash wisecrack. Other thing I want to mention is that we're doing our South Park podcast right now. South Park is on the air. So every week we're breaking down every episode. It's called Respect Our Authorita. Check that out on iTunes. And then lastly, this weekend, I'm heading to Austin to take part in the Austin Film Festival, and they're offering Wisecrack fans $25 off any badges. If you guys want to join there with me, I'm going to be doing Q&As. I'm going to be hosting Q&As for various movies. I'm going to be doing some panels. So if you guys want to hit up the Austin Film Festival with me, it's October 24th through the 31st. You can go to austinfilmfestival.com, use the promo code WISECRACK25. You'll get $25 off badges, and you'll get to hang out with me. So hope to see you there. But without further ado, let's go into a recap of this movie. It's Miles Morales' first day at a new elite boarding school where he meets and quickly develops a crush on Wanda. After school, he and his uncle Aaron graffiti an abandoned subway where he's bitten by a radioactive spider. When he starts experiencing symptoms eerily identical to that of Spider-Man, Miles goes back to the subway station where he sees Spider-Man take on a mercenary in order to stop the Kingpin from using a particle collider to open a portal to another dimension. The Kingpin's experiment fails, and Spider-Man gives Miles the only way to destroy the Collider before he's killed by Kingpin. Miles is mourning Spider-Man's death when he discovers an older, flabbier Peter Parker was sucked through the wormhole. Having accidentally broken the key to destroying the Collider, Miles now has to team up with older Peter to infiltrate Alchemex and make a new one before Peter's body glitches out of existence. 
Miles is able to spontaneously go invisible, enabling them to steal the relevant computer. But the head scientist Doc Ock is hot on their trail, and they're only able to escape because Wanda, aka Gwen Stacy slash Spider-Woman from another dimension, reveals herself and saves them. It's revealed that Kingpin's wife and child died in a car accident after he drove them away, and he's using the Collider to try to bring them back. With the help of Aunt May, Miles and company are introduced to noir Spider-Man Peter Porker and Penny Parker, and together decide to save the multiverse. Seeking guidance from Uncle Aaron, Miles goes to his apartment only to find out that he is Kingpin's mysterious henchman. When Aaron hesitates to kill Miles, he's shot dead by Kingpin. After a boost of confidence from his dad allows him to master his powers, Miles suits up and joins the rest of the crew to destroy the Collider. The rest of the team goes back to their respective dimensions, and Miles defeats the Kingpin. All of New York, including Miles' dad, celebrates the coming of a new Spider-Man. End of movie. All right, guys, before we go on, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of amazing classes covering dozens of creative and entrepreneurial skills. You can take classes in everything from photography to creative writing to design, productivity, all that stuff. Whether you're returning to a long-term passion project or you're challenging yourself to get out of your comfort zone or simply exploring something new, Skillshare has got classes for you. So one class that I took that uh, really helped me out was a class called the Writer's Toolkit, Six Successful Steps to a Successful Writing Habit by Simon Van Bui. Uh, one thing that he teaches that I want to highlight is to read inspiring works. It's very important because the best way to get inspired if you're having trouble finding something that inspires you is to surround yourself with the things and works that inspire you. Um, that's always helped me get a boost of creativity if I'm finding myself getting some kind of writer's block. So join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for Show Me the Meaning listeners, two free months. So Skillshare is offering Show Me the Meaning listeners two free months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. So to sign up, go to Skillshare.com Wisecrack. Again, that's Skillshare.com Wisecrack for your two free months. And now back to the show. All right, uh, Matthew, let's talk about the Miles are great power, great responsibility thing, because you said that it's... It's not so much great power and great responsibility. It's having no expectations for himself versus learning to have greater expectations for himself. I think that's uh, the theme that they were at least trying to go for there. And I do see that arc because Miles isn't very self-confident. He just wants to drop out of the specialized school, even though like he had the grades to get in there. He wants to hang out, you know, with his uh, friends back in Brooklyn. Uh, He just wants to live a normal life. He doesn't have grand ambitions uh, to really do anything with himself or make anything of himself. And even when the Spider-Men are first trying to teach him how to be Spider-Man, like, he just lays down. He doesn't get up when they're, like, hitting him. And, like, he doesn't have that drive. He doesn't have that internal uh, desire to, like, make it happen, get it done. Like, he has to discover himself like that leap of faith that he tried to take at the beginning of the film where he gets to the edge of the skyscraper and can't jump like versus at the end of the film like the climax of his arc where he just jumps off and it's awesome and he's doing all these flips like that i kind of see as finally having expectations for himself to be the spider-man for this dimension so I agree with everything that you said, but I do think there is a great power, great responsibility thing, specifically in how the movie is always talking about choice. And I really like how 
what you said I completely agree with, but I think that the focus on choice works really cleverly with the film's preoccupation with quantum mechanics. So I think that ultimately he learns that he's responsible for his choices and that these choices have rippling effects. And even in the face of great uncertainty, one must take that leap of faith. So at the beginning, as you already said, Miles doesn't want to take advantage of the opportunity of getting into a prestigious school, and he even attempts to fail out. But throughout the film that really hinted me to this is that there are these small nods to the idea of choice. So at the beginning, when he's about to go to his first day of school, his dad tells him, Everyone makes choices, and Miles say, doesn't seem like I have a choice, and his dad says, you don't. He's forcing him to, to go to school. And then there's a very subtle thing when Miles enters the classroom and they're talking about quantum theory. You can hear the teacher in the background say, every choice that we make would create countless other possibilities. So on the one hand, this is foreshadowing the idea of quantum mechanics that is going to be explored when the multiverse implodes or whatever and we get all these new Spider-Men in this world. But also I think it is something that Miles is dealing with. Later, there's another time, this is very, very subtle, but when Miles goes into school, someone tells him, your shoe's untied, and he says, oh, it's a choice. And then when Miles first meets Spider-Man, Spider-Man tells him that his shoe is untied. And then when he does the first Spider-Man jump, he trips on his shoelace and falls on his ass, which ends up breaking the key. And so I think what's happening here is that he is either neglecting choice or neglecting responsibility. In a sense, he doesn't want to take the responsibility of going to this new school and having to really compete and having to take advantage of these opportunities that he was given through winning the lottery and passing the test. And um, similarly, MJ, during Parker's eulogy, she says, he didn't ask for his powers, but he chose to be Spider-Man. And um, so to me, I think that you know, it's very interesting that I think there's some, like, interesting doubling thing that goes on in this movie. So on the one hand, there's two paths that Miles can take. There's be like his dad or be like his uncle. His dad is a policeman. His dad, his uncle's a criminal. Once again, like, great expectations. You know, go to this prestigious school and, you know, kick ass and be successful or no expectations. Be like a permanent bachelor like your uncle. And I think that ultimately the answer is that you need to take that leap of faith. So when Miles asks Peter when he knows that he'll be ready to uh, t uh, be able to control his powers, Peter sa says, you won't. It's a leap of faith. And then similarly, we see something similar with Miles then teaching Peter that he has to take a leap of faith in order to know that he won't screw it up again with MJ. But I think that um, it's just about taking that responsibility for your actions. Not it, It's kind of like a bad faith thing. Instead of trying to fail out or instead of trying to evade the responsibility that might come with being in a new school to take action even if it seems uncertain. Yeah. yeah. Totally. And I feel like what I really liked about this movie and correct me if I'm wrong about like comic lore, but at least like the the comic book movies that I have seen, the heroes always kind of acclimate to their situation or like Spider-Man, like acclimates to the situation pretty quickly. And I felt like it was really cool to watch Miles spend almost the entire movie not sure if he's like really going to be a Spider-Man because that's yeah. such a human reaction to getting such a huge responsibility. No, you're not wrong about comic book movies. Like people got a little burnt down on origin stories. So they basically just want to like skip the origin part and get to, okay, this is the hero. He's confident with his powers as quickly as possible. Like even the Tom Holland, Spider-Man movies, like he's already been Spider-Man. You don't see him get bit or anything. You don't see uncle Ben. He's just, okay. He can already take the shield away from Captain America. He's, 
good. So mm-hmm. finding an origin story and a reason, you know, to tell that whole origin story uh, was very successful on the part of uh, Miller and Lord. I'll give them that. Mm-hmm. Is it Miller too? I thought I only saw Lord's name. Oh, I always think it's them working together. Uh, I'm so used to yeah. them doing everything. Did Miller not work on it? No, I guess not. I, 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 I think I just saw Phil Lord's name on there. I mean, it's funny because people always say things like Matt Stone and Trey Parker also, but it's usually just Trey. <laughs> um, I'm guilty of that, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So I think it was a really interesting alteration on the great power, great responsibility thing, because especially in these more recent Spider-Man things, we've always seen kind of interesting takes on it. So with uh, Homecoming... It was, is Peter Parker, this young high school kid, responsible enough to wield great power? And then in the newer one, Far From Home, it was you know, Peter Parker trying to put the responsibility onto Mysterio instead of taking it for himself, which he ultimately realizes he needs to do. And then in this one, it's just I, – I like how it's responsibility as a leap of faith, responsibility as not trying to evade responsibility at all and to kind of dive first into uncertainty which once again when you bring up things like the schrodinger's cat experiment when you're being faced with two choices and the idea of it being both before a decision is made or when something is observed i think it's just really really clever and as far as uh seeing different uh outcomes of choices you're seeing two different spider-men you know peter parkers you know that have made vastly different choices in life you know the ultimate version of peter parker uh you know this fit lean guy that is at the top of his game versus peter b parker uh the mr miyagi type in this movie who is older fatter out of shape uh despondent you know broken up over his marriage who's making all the wrong choices now so yeah, yeah. Well, and and ultimately he learns that. I think the idea is that just as Miles is uncertain about the ability to wield his powers, just as he's uncertain about whether he'll be able to succeed or fit in at this school, Peter B. Parker was also uncertain that he would be a fit father. But I think the movie argues that you're never going to be certain. You're never going to be certain you're going to be a good dad. You're never going to be certain about your powers. You're never going to be certain that you're going to fit into the school. You just got to take that leap of faith and just do it. And I think it works so well. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and then there's, so there's that part where I really, God, y- y- this movie really very efficiently is able to get so much emotion in there because you really don't see a lot of a- uh, Uncle Aaron and Miles spending time together. And you don't really see a lot of Peter B. Parker and MJ together. But yet, whenever Uncle Aaron tells Peter that, oh, man, I let you down, man, it's so emotional. And then whenever Peter Parker, Peter B. Parker is telling MJ that he regrets not giving her more bread, which is obviously a stand-in for <laughs> I regret not giving you the kids that you asked for, it just works so well. And really, it just speaks to how good writing is all about efficiency. Like, we don't need to see three scenes with... Miles and Uncle Aaron, we get it immediately. Yeah, and I think Uncle Aaron almost works better than Uncle Ben. Like, obviously, it's a subversion of the Uncle Ben dies, and that's what the motivating oh, nice. factor becomes Spider-Man. But having him be the villain, and that just heightens the drama so much. And pitting Uncle Aaron and his father against each other, almost Shakespearean, uh, in a sense, just because there's so much family drama to unfold. And do you see it as there's a forking road, one is his father, one is his, is Uncle Aaron, and he takes a third independent path? Or do you see it as him taking his father's path? 
Uh, the only way he's really diverging from his father, and he's not so much diverging as converging with his father by the end of the film. His father is very much against vigilantism, hates Spider-Man. Right. But, you know, at the end, he's becoming more responsible, like his father, having higher expectations for himself. But his father's also moving in a direction where he can work with Spider-Man, and he doesn't see him as the villain. He doesn't see him as an impediment to responsible police investigation. He sees him as a potential partner in the fight against crime. So they're, they're both kind of converging on each other. I do a little bit resent um, graffiti art being portrayed as like a signifier of of deviance and, and, and you know, like moral wrongness because I feel like good graffiti is really cool. Oh, see, so. I, don't, I don't agree with that because, first of all, on his suit, the spider symbol is graffiti. Yeah. And then I think that even the psychedelic imagery of the collider and just generally the kind of postmodern aesthetic and all the most all the multiverses colliding is supposed to evoke that kind of graffiti art that's interesting yeah uh but matthew i wanted to ask more about this uncle ben things that's not something i had thought of but so in the original spider-man lore peter parker regrets not taking action to save uncle ben and so then he realizes like i can't sit on the sidelines because then good people like my uncle will die what do you think that miles learns when uncle aaron dies uh, I think it definitely shatters uh, who he thought about his uncle, although he already did see that in a few scenes earlier uh, when he was in his uncle's apartment and Prowler comes in and he re- realizes it. Uh, maybe it's the fact that like he wasn't really in the fight. Like, you know, the other spider people were so competent, so uh, knew what to do with their powers and how to take on these criminals, and all he could do was run. You know what? There, there is something there that's happening. There's uh, something. I, I don't Do you exactly think have my finger on it, though. I mean, it's kind of like if you lose your role model, like like Uncle, he wanted to be Uncle Aaron. Right. That was like he didn't want to be his dad. He wanted to be Uncle Aaron. And finding out that your role model is not who you thought they were yeah. is pretty – it kind of throws you into a crisis of what to do with yourself. So, But do you think that he – I'm – Focusing on this thing of choice, since it's all over the movie, but do you think that he's realizing that, in a sense, Uncle Aaron didn't take responsibility for his decisions because Aaron is on his deathbed with heavy regret saying, I let you down, man. Mm -hmm. And so do you think the lesson is to not be passive, to not try to fail out of school just because things are uncomfortable or not to... Yeah, think something. I'm I'm still trying to figure it out myself. I wish we knew a little bit more about why Uncle Aaron became Prowler. I think he's just. I mean, I think the general thing that we can deduce is he's like a he's a bachelor. He's probably always tried to do things the untraditional way. He's perhaps maybe always been in trouble with the law, but just generally, like he's the kind of guy who says, you know, oh, your dad's a working stiff. Yeah, I, I would imagine. It, it's oh, not so much that he made a bad decision in life. Uh, remember, the father says, like, they were both on that same path. It was the father who, after being in the same wrong crowd, you know, committing the same crimes as Aaron, like, decided to go straight. Like, he was, you know, where Miles was, you know, sort of listless in life, you know, until, again, like, Miles made a decision to take responsibility for himself. So Aaron didn't make a choice to be who he was. That's just kind of like the lazy path he was already on uh mm-hmm. jefferson right. made so the that, choice so, to positively change 
Right. So the lazy path that Aaron is on is essentially Miles not tying his shoes to quite quote unquote make the choice to not tie my sh- tie your shoes, which then ends up tripping you and you end up falling off a building. Bad faith for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So you already mentioned the Great Expectations thing. I haven't read Great Expectations since middle school. I'm not or sorry, high school. Uh, I'm not terribly familiar with it. But the one thing I do remember is that it's told from the perspective of an old Pip who's writing this autobiography, ironically, commenting on the fact that his life didn't amount to shit by calling it Great Expectations. So the, he's saying that the greatest thing in his life were the expectations, not the reality. So I always thought this Great Expectations thing never really made sense to me. I think the way that you put it, Matthew, is it makes sense. But... I wanted to hear more about that. Are you into Dickens, Matthew? Uh, I love A Christmas Carol. That's the only one I've really read by him. Uh, but I noticed that it was a motif uh, in the movie, so I did as much research as I could to figure out, like, what are they trying to say by bringing this up in the background uh, all over the place? Because it's Great Expectations, the book, and if you guys, if anyone is more of a Dickens expert than me, which doesn't take much, please send us an email, movies at wisecrack.co. But... I don't the the book does not suggest that Pip ought to have had bigger expectations. Really Pip's big expectations were a folly. Mm-hmm. And so to use that book as a signal that he should, you know, not resign himself to low expectations but should make strong choices, take a leap of faith into greatness. It's a little bit weird. Yeah. I'm having trouble with that too. Did you read Great Expectations? Yeah, yeah, a while back, but yeah. yeah. Um yeah, I wonder if it's if it's almost meant to be like his perspective is Pip's perspective, but throughout the course of the film, he like realizes that that's not the right perspective. Mm-hmm. Like he's he feels like these great expectations are being thrust upon him, and like he's going to fail. I would have liked if we got a glimpse of what his essay that he turned in was. Yeah. If it was something like "fuck Pip," then yeah. I think <laughs> then I think that would have been really cool. Yeah. Um, All right, I want to move on to talking about the visuals. I think that, and I think, Matthew, you already said this, but I really do like how you mentioned that it's kind of this postmodern era where, you know, we're more concerned with ideas of representation. And I really like how this movie is metropolitan in more than one way. It's not only metropolitan in that we're identifying with actors that are characters that have different backgrounds than than we're used to in comic book movies and specifically within Spider-Man movies, but also that there's this metropolitan mix of animation styles, which to Matthew's point, really all seamlessly blend together and make it really fun. Mm -hmm. There's anime mixed with the Looney Tunes-esque Porky Pig, which he actually explicitly points to when he says, that's all, folks. And then he's like, well, can we say that legally? (laughs) Um, And I really like how all their action mirrors their animation style. That sequence when um, the anime girl jumps into her robot is so epic and so funny because it looks like she jumps 700 feet into the air, but she's like in Aunt May's house. And it's so exaggerated and just, uh, I think it works so well. And her just like snacking and coding. It's just, it's so good. Yeah. And I love the way I feel like sometimes attempts at representation can feel a little pandery, at least from like my own experience of watching like Captain Marvel. I felt like a lot of that movie was about like saying, hey, we have like a girl superhero. Watch us. Watch like be impressed. And this didn't feel that way at all. I felt like it was so true to like the narrative and it didn't. Yeah. I love the way it didn't pander. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is just that 
if if the movie sucks, it's going to seem like it panders. You know, that's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> but, Valid. But all of this just works really well, and all the characters are just really believable. Absolutely. Um, uh, I would have been interested. I'm glad they did the animation style they did. It would have been interesting to see a live action version of Spider Ham to see if they still have like this cartoon running around, almost like uh, you know Who Framed Roger Rabbit and I wouldn't be surprised if some Spider-Verse movie in the future uh, goes that direction. Do you guys think, uh, Matthew, you saw this in the theaters, right? Oh, absolutely. The first time you saw it, were you at all disoriented by some of the doubling that happens in the foreground and the background? You know what I'm talking about? The Oh, yes, exactly. No, I was noticing that again last night, too. Like, oh, no, is there something wrong with the new 4K TV I just bought? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, because it kind of doubles blurs a little bit that was a weird choice i'll admit that when i saw it in the theaters i thought is this a 3d screening did they forgot to forget to give us the glasses or something but that's just the way it looks and i didn't know now watching it for the second time i was wondering if there is this we talked about this theme of you know in sense quantum mechanics being stuck between two possible paths this duality between his uncle and his dad if this doubling is also there for thematic reasons, in that the out-of-focus background and foreground are characterized by these double layers or these double images. And that also connects to the fact, excuse me, that the school is called Visions. Yeah, I thought that was a weird name for the school because first time I saw the movie, I'm like, wait, does this tie into the broader like Marvel Universe? Is this like run by Vision from like Vision and Wanda? Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, Didn't did think not turn that. out to be that way. <laughs> Okay. Um, and then, okay, last thing I want to bring up before we go into the mailbag, unless, Matthew, Amanda, is there anything else you guys wanted to bring up? Um, I really liked also, like, the theme of community, and it might be a little corny, but I just, I love the idea of we're so used to seeing, or at least in my limited experience, seeing superheroes being kind of isolated by their powers, and it was something really mm. cool about, like, even if you are alone in a world, and you're the only person who can, like, turn invisible, knowing that there are people out in, like, a different reality who are like you. I thought oh. it was just a really lovely... It's, it's just such a lovely movie. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. Most superhero movies, especially origin stories their powers alienate them. Yeah. Whereas in this case, it allows him to find community. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. Yeah. I, I guess I'll say one last thing, and that's I think Spider-Man works best when they lean into the hard sci-fi elements. Spider-Man is like Batman in that like you could go for a very grounded story, you know, street-level kind of crime where it's talking about that low-level kind of stuff. Uh, or you can get very heady where he's traveling to different planets and whatnot. And I know a lot of people prefer... The former, you know, Spider-Man just sticking to Manhattan and doing his piece there. But I love when he's hopping universes and meeting all these alien races. And I think that's what Spider-Man really comes into his own. So this is my Spider-Man movie more than any of the others before. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Last thing I want to ask is what did you think about the intertextual Spider-Man 3 nod at the beginning? How how is how do you feel in general about Spider Man Three? I don't know if you've seen it, Amanda, I but Matthew, I, no I know I know you certainly. <laughs> have. I saw it once in theaters, and I have no intention of ever seeing it again. Oh, that you was... hated it that much? Oh, one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. <laughs> the only worst superhero movie I've ever seen is Venom. So, Sony knows how to make some great movies, and they know how to make some true bombs. 
You know, you should watch it again. I'm not saying that I like Spider-Man 3, but I, similar to you, only saw it once in theaters. And then I rewatched it like two years ago. And I'm just a Sam Raimi fan. And I started watching it through that lens. And the kind of Sam Raimi camp that worked really well in the first two movies, that doesn't work very well in this movie. But if you like Sam Raimi, I think you can find some things to appreciate about the movie. But it probably just did disservice to Spider-Man. I guess I can give it one more try. But uh, as far as like the intertextuality, I do love and hate you know how he's reading Spider-Man comic books you know in his world. Mm-hmm. They get a little too close in that artwork to what Peter Parker actually looked like, you know, and to what Peter Parker must have actually been going through when he still had a secret identity at that point in the movie. That seemed very suspicious. Like, why would you put yourself out there like that in the comic book form? Yeah, in general, mm-hmm. I'm pretty critical of those kind of winks and nods. I didn't even really like it that much when it was in Logan, when you see Logan reading his reading X-Men comics. It just opens up so many questions about the the believability of the world um, that I think, and it, I don't really think it adds much often. But, I mean, this joke was funny. I remember in the theaters people were losing their shit over it because the the whole dance that he does is basically a meme now. Yeah, and Which is why it really doesn't detract that much from the movie. Uh, yeah. One property that really nails that actually is The Boys, you don't see it on the TV show yet, but in the comics, the characters are also comic book characters, and it makes perfect sense in the world. Uh. One thing I did feel I kind of liked, I don't know if you're talking exactly about this, but the moment when he's watching the cartoon character have the same reactions that he had to his experience. Uh, yeah, he's reading he's like, the comic book. and Yeah, and oh, it's exactly. literally his experience, and I feel like that also kind of connects to him feeling so much better once he meets other Spider-Mans from other universes. Oh, okay, yeah. Like, just kind of wanting to have your experience validated. I don't know. Okay, I, 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 I buy that. Uh, all right, we're going to go into the mailbag. Uh, Amanda and Matthew, are you guys up on Breaking Bad at all? Yeah, I saw El Camino. I saw Matthew? the pilot episode. Oh, my God, that's it? Are you going to die if we do spoilers? No, not at all. Go for it. Okay. All right. Well, you know what? Actually, we got uh, we got a voicemail about the Joker. We got a couple voicemails about the Joker. And as our comic book expert, I still want to think, want to hear what you think about it, Matthew. So let's go into our first, first voicemail about Joker. You guys can hit us up at 213-534-8807. This one is from Levi. What's up? Show me the main crew. It's Levi. I'm calling in about the Joker. Um... I just want to say that I saw it for the first time on opening weekend, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I saw it as a character study and as a critique of modern society. And I think when uh, certain members of your podcast call it a we live in a society meme, it may speak more to the person making that comment (laughs) rather than the artist. So not to say that criticism isn't valid, but I, I think that it is a very valuable critique of society and to show that we do have a personal responsibility to citizens. Um, I also wanted to say on the aspect of viewing it as a comedy, I saw it the next weekend, this time on a date, and I saw it much more as a comedy. Uh, for instance, when Arthur is bent over and his body just looks contorted and horrific as he's just kind of loosening up his clown shoes. Uh, I saw lots of moments like that where it was building up these moments of intensity and uh, uh, this grotesque kind of feeling. But it, it, it kind of it, it took that catharsis, that, that big dramatic moment, 
and twisted it a little bit. And uh, I think that the movie can definitely be seen as a comedy. Uh, however, I, I'm not sure that my date uh, enjoyed me laughing at certain points <laughs> of the movie on my second viewing. Um, I just want to say I'm a big fan of everything you guys do, from the videos to the multiple podcasts. I listen to just about all of them when I work my night shift. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you guys keep me going through those long shifts. So uh, thank you again, big fan, and uh, I'd love to hear you guys keep on going. Thanks. Thanks, Levi. Yay, I, I thanks. appreciate that. All right. Uh, so as far as the tragedy comedy thing, I need to see it again. And mm -hmm. it's this discussion point that's made me look forward to seeing it again the most because – I also think it has a lot to do with the people that you see it with. So I know Amanda and I had very different viewing experiences. From what you said, right, like everyone was like dead serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas in my theater, I actually saw it with like only three other people in the theater. So there was really almost no collective effervescence that I was buying into. But we've already talked about the Joker. I want to hear, Matthew, what are your thoughts on the movie and perhaps anything that Levi is specifically pointing to? So surprisingly, I've only seen this once so far. I saw it uh, the Thursday that Comic-Con opened, so I went to... Uh to the AMC in Midtown, watched it there with uh, a whole lot of other comic book fans in the theater. I would have to see it again before I make a final decision, whether it's comedy, tragedy, or trying to go both, because uh, I see the arguments for both of those. As far as it being uh, we live in a society meme, I am going to have to disagree <laughs> with Lux a little bit on this one. I think the original killing joke is far more so that, because there you have purportedly a sane uh, Joker, like who's pre-Joker before that, and it takes, you know, one bad day, society putting him through that in order to crack. Whereas Arthur here, he has these long-term, you know, mental problems that, you know, might have been inflicted onto him as a child, might have been with him uh, just naturally since birth. Everything in the movie is suspect. We know very few scenes that we can trust that we're seeing what's really happening. I would say probably the end at Arkham uh, is real, where he's realizing that his neighbor, who he thought was his girlfriend, those didn't happen. That scene of realization is probably real. I wouldn't imagine an insane person is imagining themselves, imagining themselves realizing they're insane. Uh, and probably uh, where he's watching uh, Murray or Maury for the first time, uh, and he comes out of the daydream. Those we can say are real scenes, but everything else is suspect. So whether it really is society to blame or whether it is a delusion of a madman that is blaming society without cause, uh, the film is way too ambiguous on that to really form a thesis as to, as to it. Mm. So am I to hear that you're uncertain where you land on the movie in terms of if you liked it or not? Oh, I, I enjoyed I know, it very much, uh, mostly because okay. I was just so afraid I was not going to enjoy it. The last thing yeah. I wanted was a definitive origin story of the Joker. This is who he is, no questions. And there are plenty of questions as to what parts of the movie are true and which aren't. We get that thankful multiple choice. We don't have to pick you know which of these is the right answer gotcha all right um let's do one more voicemail about joker and then we'll go into some emails hey this is david long time listener first time caller i'm hoping not too late to give a opinion about the joker movie i enjoyed your guys review and i enjoyed it your thoughts one thing that really confuses me is how much people are giving it grief for its moral ambiguity. It's a Jericho movie. 
of course it has more ambiguity. I mean, we've been cheering on the Joker forever, and he's been a murderous, psychopath, manipulative person since the beginning of his, since the beginning of Batman. And I think that people have problems with it now because Joker has always been seen as a force of nature. So we cheer on his murders, his crimes, because it comes out of nowhere. But because this movie has him with a background and a reason behind his madness, we realize, oh, wait, that's a problem because it could actually happen in life. Can't wait to hear you guys' thoughts. Thanks. Bye. Okay, I like David's point a lot here, and this actually had crossed my mind at one point, because with The Dark Knight especially, it really is as if the Joker fell out of the sky, that he wasn't an actual human being. When Commissioner Gordon says, you know, he's got no fingerprints, he has no identification, the only thing that he has in his pockets are knives and lint. You know, it really does say, in a sense, that the Joker is really an embodiment of a uh, an element of humanity that is that is like gross, you know, and like we're not actually meant to believe that this is a real human being. And then this movie definitely, at least I can see where Matthew's coming from in saying that so much is up in the air, but it does humanize him a bit. And that's always what I was afraid of going into it. And God, you know, I'm at the point now where I'm just kind of suspending any opinions of the movie until I see it again, (laughs) because it really just opens a lot of questions every time I'm willing, every time I want to say anything declarative about this movie. But uh, what do you think, Matthew? The, the way I see it, Arthur Fleck is what Heath Ledger's Joker lies about being, what he pretends to be. He claims that he is this force of chaos, that he is a dog chasing cars, but his plans are elaborate intricate he has a goal in mind and everything that he's doing does advance that goal fairly successfully uh he has a lot of foresight whereas arthur fleck we know what he thinks he's about to do and then he does something very different he's planning on probably killing himself and then he ends up uh murdering the talk show host he is much more of an actual chaotic figure than heath ledger's joker ever was Mm, as far I like as and, it, and I think that actually seeing that chaos and actually seeing a defino- definitive route to that chaos is probably way more disturbing than having a character who fell from the sky and only talks about chaos in monologues. I, I don't I think he is a great actor, uh, Joaquin Phoenix. I don't think that this is a very aspirational character. I can't imagine the type of person that would go into the Joker and say, oh man, what a cool guy. I want to be just like him. Uh, Because he is contorted in his movements. He is awkward around people. He is all these things that are successfully not cool. I don't think that it uh, fetishizes the Joker in any way or his criminality, uh, which... You could almost say that the Dark Knight does. He is a cool villain there, but he is not a cool protagonist in Joker. Yeah, but I think perhaps the argument is more that there's a source of relatability to Phoenix's Joker that there isn't with Ledger's Joker. Because he's actually a human. Because he's human and deals with things that a lot of people deal with today, whether it's you know economic problems, mental health problems. Etc. I mean, I don't know that I believe this, but I do get the argument that you could see the film as like an elaborate justification for like committing violent crimes. I think you could read it that way. Yeah. I don't think that's like what was intended, but I think it can be read that way for yeah. sure. And if that was the yeah. case, I don't think that would necessarily make it 
a bad film. I mean, it would be morally reprehensible of a message, but I think you could have uh, an absolutely immoral film that is still successful as art, you know, on the merits For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, uh, let's do a couple emails about El Camino. So we got an email from Chaz. By the way, if you guys want to hit us up with anything, movies at wisecrack.co. So Chaz said, you asked the question if the movie title meant anything more than just the car, and you mentioned briefly that El Camino means the way in Spanish. I also think it's interesting that El Camino is another another name for the Camino de Santiago, which is a network of trails leading to the shrine of the Apostle St. James in northwestern Spain. There is a traditional and popular pilgrimage people make as a means of self-discovery and path to enlightenment. It's still pretty popular today. Uh, But what is even more interesting for the movie is that in the Middle Ages, the church viewed this trail as a form of penance to pay for one's sins, meaning pilgrimages were a suitable form of forgiveness for some temporal punishment, and they can be used as an act of penance for those who were guilty of certain crimes. I'm not sure if in the movie El Camino, Jesse ever performs any act of penance, maybe the letter at the end, but I do see the movie as a path towards Jesse's own self-actualization. Do y'all see any connection here from Chaz? So I guess you and I are the only ones that have seen it. Yeah. The thing is, is that at the beginning, Mike says that you can never make things better. Yeah. So that's my only real struggle with what he's saying. And if anything, the movie is about him becoming more indiscriminately violent as a means of self-preservation for sure. But Mm -hmm. I mean, nonetheless, he definitely doesn't repent for the bad things he did. If anything, it's like because so much bad was done to him, he kind of was morally allowed to like kill indiscriminately yeah uh we got another email from Jarrett or Jarrett. sorry if i'm getting it wrong uh he starts off the email saying that he really did not like breaking bad's finale but he actually says some really interesting things about el camino so he says el camino followed a lot of the beats that should have annoyed me in the way that felina did but i got some more meat in discovering jesse pinkman's character it was an interesting fight for jesse's soul as all of his past mistakes including his juvenile delinquency before the pilot episode were catching up to him not to mention the media depicting him as a lost child to the criminal underbelly this provided some tension to not see him succumb to the ugliest impulses the way walter did his ultimate conclusion was that he was a dishonest kid who was always manipulated therefore he had no choice but to become the dishonest kid that people saw him as so he performs one final crime before his inevitable rebirth after that jesse more honest and but not innocent of all the protagonists is forced into a new identity which is the core of the Breaking Bad universe. Only Jimmy McGill and Walter White do not obtain a new identity as a natural survival instinct. They embrace it as a hypermasculine way to excel as legends or celebrities. There are framing issues and questionable character moments, and this film did write itself into a corner because you weren't going to release Jesse just to kill him or capture him again. Despite that, I felt I could navigate the film with a stronger sense of character than the overrated mess that was Felina from Gerard. I like his rebirth point a lot about how, unlike Walt, who is a narcissist and an egoist, he accepts rebirth with a new identity. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he does it exactly the same way that Walter did, though, like in season three or whatever. Oh, you're right. Wait, but did Walter, yeah, I guess. Walter, he literally follows Walter's exact path towards, like, using this guy as a way of getting a new identity. You do get the sense that he's going to stick to it. But I thought it was interesting that even in trying to, like, create a new story for himself, he still went back to Walter's guy and did Walter's thing. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, you're totally right. Haven't seen the finale episodes in a while. 
Um, all right, we're going to go ahead and end it there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, thank you, Amanda and Matthew, for joining me. Where can we find you guys on the Internet? Matthew. Okay, I am over at the Hub City Review. Uh, I also have a podcast called the Super Sexy Podcast that speculates as to the sex lives of superheroes. We should have a new show coming up on Wednesday. And I'm also on Twitter at Matt J. Therio. That's T-H-E-R-I-A-U-L-T. And Amanda. Just uh, everything wisecrack and, you know, writing videos, writing on Medium. Check out our Medium. And if you guys want, if you guys live at or near or around Austin, Texas, I'll be there all weekend. Uh, So come check out Austin Film Festival. Until then, we'll see you next week, guys. Peace.